All right, so as we begin a new sermon series uh, this week, uh, kind of a summer series that we'll be in for several weeks, uh, it's also important to kind of maybe point out that this is the 77th uh, anniversary of the Battle of D-Day, that, that important day in human history where that marked the end or the beginning of the end of World War II, where the Allied forces uh, stormed the beach at Normandy on June 6, 1944. So we are here 77 years later enjoying some of the fruits of the hard and difficult labor that those uh, men and women put in on that day to storm those beaches and to prepare for that event. Uh, so, you know, you'll hear a lot of uh, uh, probably uh, commentary or, or statements about D-Day today, so look forward to that. But I don't know who marked this, uh, this important anniversary that just passed us. I don't know if any of you marked this important anniversary, but on May 28th, we passed another very important day in human history. Uh, and it probably was not celebrated in many homes. Probably very few people were even aware that this anniversary took place on May 28th. But May 28th marked the 2,606th anniversary of the beginning of the practice of science and philosophy in the West. It's something that we take for granted now that we live in this scientific age, but it wasn't always so. There was a particular day, and you might ask, how do I know this anniversary is exactly 2,606 years? Well, on May 28, 525 B.C., a man named Thales of Miletes predicted that there would be a total solar eclipse. He predicted it. The first recorded prediction of a solar eclipse that we have. And this particular prediction was important because Thales, when he predicted this, began to ask questions that became to become known as the fundamental questions of Western science and of Western philosophy. And those questions that he began to ask were questions like this, how is it that I can predict anything? How is it that I can predict that on this particular day, the moon is going to pass in front of the sun? What is it that makes sense out of the world so that I can make predictions about the world? What is it that brings order out of the chaos? You see, Thales lived in a world where there was a, a, a million, a billion, a, you know, an infinite number of different things. And he thought to himself, what is it that makes all of these things, these various things that I encounter, a chair, a, 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 a building, a, the stars in the sky, the moon and the sun, what is it that makes all of these different things work together? What brings order to the chaos? What doesn't change? You see, he observed the world and he observed that all the things that he could see changed from moment to moment, even if the changes were imperceptible, even if they were small, even if it was just that from this point to this point in the day, they were just a little bit older. They were a constant change going on in the world around him. And he wondered to himself, he said, what doesn't change? What is it that doesn't change? What is ultimately real? And the questions that he began to ask on that day eventually were refined into three main questions that have constantly and consistently, even to this day, plagued Western philosophy. And these questions are this, why does anything exist at all? It's a question of existence. The next question is a question of motion. Why do things move? Why do things change? What set this whole thing into motion? And the final question is a question of life. See, Thales and everybody else, you on a constant daily basis realize that life is something special, it's something important. What accounts for life? It's with those three questions that Thales and the philosophers that would come for 2,606 years now would begin to ask themselves, and what's important for our purposes here today is to realize that 800 years before Thales was even born, a shepherd in the Midianite wilderness who was watching over his father's sheep 
had a personal encounter with that ultimate reality. We all know the story of Moses, or most of us do. Most of us have heard it at some point or another in church, maybe in Sunday school when you were growing up, or maybe you watched the, the great production with Charleston Heston of the Ten Commandments, you know, the, the big uh, Hollywood movie that came out about it years and years ago. Or maybe you've had the more contemporary ability to watch the, the cartoon, The Prince of Egypt, which is, is a required watching for my kids in my house. It recounts these great events of Moses, the prince of Egypt, who is exiled after he, after he kills an Egyptian and he leaves and he finds himself having fallen from grace and he's now just a poor, simple shepherd in the Midianite wilderness. And it's while he's watching sheep in the Midianite wilderness that he comes across a bush that is burning, but that is not itself consumed. And he's blown away. He's amazed by this burning bush. And then he's even more amazed. He's terrified as this bush begins to speak to him. And the bush says to him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it commands him and says, I have heard the cries of my people, Israel, as they are in slavery in Egypt, and I am telling you, Moses, you go back to Egypt, and you confront Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, and you tell him to let my people go. And of course, Moses has some questions for God. And one of those questions we read in verse chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, and we read God's response to it. And here's what we read in that section, in that passage. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? That's a reasonable question. Who do I say sent me? What's your name? And God provides a response, and he repeats it three times in this text. And here's the response that he provides. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am, that's the second time, has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say to this people, the Lord. Now, if you're looking in your book or if you're probably looking on the screen, what should be highlighted here is that these words, the Lord, should be in all capital letters. And when you read that in Scriptures, what is behind that particular rendering of the Lord in all capital letters is the Hebrew word Yahweh, the personal name of God, which means to be. Here's the third time that God gives to Moses his name. And then he continues and finishes and says, The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. God gives Moses his name. And his name, as he says it himself, is I am. I exist. Now, theologians have looked into the meaning of this for, for centuries and centuries, and the conclusions that they come to in cons consultation with the rest of Scripture are this, that G God is telling to Moses, I exist. 800 years before Thales of Miletus even began asking questions about what is ultimately real, God is declaring to Moses here in these verses, I am real. I am ultimate reality. I am the one that makes sense of the world. I am the one that brings order out of chaos. I am the one that owns existence, that exists in himself. Existence belongs to me. I am the one who set all things into motion. I am the one who gives life. Here, God himself encounters Moses and answers the questions that have plagued Western philosophy for over 2,606 years. Now, here's what you need to know. God is the ultimate reality that provides meaning to everything else. 
God is the ultimate reality that determines what everything means. Now, the book of Exodus was originally written in Hebrew, the Hebrew language. But over time, as the Greek culture began to influence most of the world, uh, the Greek language became dominant. And eventually, in that era, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And the version of the Old Testament that we get, get that was written in Greek, we call the Septuagint. And so this, the Greek language is, has been, uh, the Old Testament has been translated into the Greek language, and most of the New Testament is written originally in Greek. And when we look at the translators, these Hebrew translators who translated from Hebrew to Greek, how they word this section in Exodus chapter 3, when they come to the name of God, they render it in a very specific way with two specific words that they use to represent what God says about Himself here, I am who I am. They use the phrase, ego emi, ego emi, which is really just the authors repeating themselves. Ego is a Greek word that can be used to represent I am. And emi is a slightly different use of the same verb that also means I am. And so when the author, the Greek uh, interpreters or the Hebrew interpreters interpreted this passage into Greek, they used a particular phrasing that's found very little in Greek language to represent what God says about Himself here, the phrase ego emi. And why that's important with us, for us today is because no little less than eight times in the book of John does Jesus use the phrase, I am, to describe Himself. And each time He uses that phrase, He uses the verb forms that we find here in Exodus chapter 3 to refer to Himself. Ego, emi. And here are the times where he says it. Here's what he says about himself each of these times. The first time, the one we're going to look at today, he says, I am, ego emi, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And finally, but probably the most revealing, is what he says in John chapter 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. Ego emi. And each time Jesus uses this phrase and the words that follow it that He uses to describe Himself, not only is He saying something about Himself and His identity, but He's also revealing something about the nature of ultimate reality through His I Am statements. And that's what this sermon series is going to be about. How does Jesus describe Himself? And how does that help us understand who He is and who God is and what reality is really like? And so today we're going to be looking at the first of Jesus' I Am statements which come to us in John chapter 6, I Am the Bread of Life. Now as we start looking at this section, <clears throat> one thing to, to point out, I think it's really important for us to, to get, is the importance of food. Now, that's a topic that I love to discuss because I am a foodie at heart. I love food in our family. I am the one who is probably the most particular, well, I like the most kinds of food, so I'm not the most picky in that sense, but I love good quality food. We plan a lot of trips. My wife is amazing at planning trips for our families, and we will travel, we will drive to places, we will fly to places, and she knows that probably the most important aspect, most important element of that trip for me is where are we going to eat? 
Where, where are we going to get food? I love food. And I think part of my love for food comes from a movie, a Disney movie that I, I watched when I was probably six years old. Uh, it was, you know, there was that time when the only thing you could watch on Sunday nights was the Disney movie on Sunday nights. And you, you would sit in front of the TV, you would wait for that to come up. And, and this particular night, it was Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And we were living on the island of Guam at the time, and I remember watching that movie that night, and I was fascinated as there's a scene in that movie where the submarine, Captain Nemo's submarine, goes to the bottom of the ocean, and he opens the doors to the submarine, and divers go out, and they begin to collect the bounty of the sea. And they bring it all in, and they set this incredible table out with all of the different seafoods that they could gather from the seafloor. And I remember after I watched that movie, I probably begged my parents for days and days and days to go eat seafood. And finally, we went to Charlie's Steakhouse, which was one of the few nice restaurants there in Guam, and they allowed me to get shrimp scampi. And I remember I was just like, wow, this is everything I ever dreamed it could be, you know. But food is fundamental. Food is absolutely fundamental to life. We take for granted in our society, in our culture, the fact that it is relatively easy for us to get three meals a day. That is not true in much of the world and for much of human history. It is very difficult for most of humanity to find enough food just to eat for the day. Hunger and malnutrition are probably, if not, not probably, are almost certainly the number one killer of human beings that there is. If not directly because of people starving directly, but incidentally by malnutrition creating people who are giving people weaknesses or, or uh, uh, making them vulnerable to illnesses that they otherwise would not get if it was not for their malnutrition. Food is fundamental to life. People are concerned with it. The Bible has a lot to say about food. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that God gives to mankind plants to eat. That gets a mention in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 3, when we come to the fall of mankind, the whole purpose, the reason for the fall, the whole material that the fall revolves around is a tree that produces fruit that is described to Eve as saying, it looked, the food looked good to the eye to eat. Food was a temptation to man at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, God curses the ground so that it yields its fruit much more difficult, much more difficultly than it did before. In Genesis chapter 9, God gives animals as food after the flood. In the Mosaic law, there are all kinds of dietary restrictions. There are laws relating to the provision of food for the priesthood. There are laws related to the provision of food for the poor. The Bible has a ton to say about food. In Matthew 6, 11, as Jesus is teaching His disciples how to pray, what does He say? He says, you know, uh, uh, the first request that is given to in that prayer, the first petition is, uh, give us this day our daily bread. That's the first thing that Jesus tells us to ask for, is our daily bread. Food has the power to sustain life. Food has the power to sustain life. And that is really important as we come to John chapter 6, because the context of John chapter 6 is at the very beginning of that chapter, Jesus performs one of His most impressive miracles. He feeds 5,000 people, 5,000 men, indicating that there were other people, other women and children in the crowd, so even a larger crowd than that, 5,000 people at least with five barley loaves and two fish from a young boy's lunch. One of Jesus' most impressive miracles, obviously, feeding them so much so that there was stuff left over to feed others if they needed it. And the crowd itself was so impressed with Jesus' miracle that here's what the Scriptures say about it. In verse 15, it says, 
uh, Jesus perceives the crowd is about to do something. He says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus, after he performs this miracle, is aware of how impressed the crowd was, and he knows that they are about to come and grab him and take him by force and name him to be their king. That's how impressed they are. Of course, that word by force is very important there. They weren't going to ask Jesus to be king. They had purposes for Jesus. They had an agenda that they wanted to fulfill with Jesus. They wanted to make him king, of course, so that he, this powerful man who clearly could do these miracles, could overthrow the Romans and accomplish for them their political agendas, their political purposes. And Jesus leaves and withdraws by himself to the mountains. And we read just a few verses later that the disciples not knowing where Jesus is, get in a boat and sail across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And there, when they're four miles offshore, we read of another impressive miracle of Jesus, of they're just sitting out there four miles from shore in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden, Jesus steps into the boat. And I love what he says. He says, because they're terrified about this, he says, oh, it's I. Do not be afraid. The context for Jesus walking on the water is him escaping this crowd that he knows has purposes for him that are not in line with his purposes. And when they get to the other side, the crowd follows them to the other side, goes all the way around the Sea of Galilee and catches Jesus in Capernaum. And that's where we pick up in verse 25. And let's look at that together. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. So what's Jesus doing here? What's he telling them? He's calling them out. He's calling them out. He's saying, You're not looking for me because you saw the signs. What do signs do? Signs point to something, right? On your drive home today, you're going to be driving down the street, and you're going to see a stop sign, and that sign tells you to do something, points to something. It points to the fact that this is an area where there are people may be coming across the other way, and you should stop. And you recognize the sign, and you do what you're supposed to do. He's saying, you're not here because you saw my signs and understood the truth. He says to them, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You got what you wanted from me, and so you're coming here to get more of what you want from me. Not because you understand who I am. And then Jesus says this. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. You see, they have purposes for Jesus. They want Him to accomplish certain things for them. One, as we're going to find out in a minute, they want Him to feed Him again, feed them again. But two, They want him to become king so that he can overthrow the Roman authorities and so that they can have their earthly kingdom. They have purposes for Jesus. And Jesus' response to that is saying, do not work for the food that perishes. Your purposes will pass away. Romans come and go. Kingdoms come and go. You're going to be hungry again if I feed you again. Do not work for that kind of food. Work for the food that doesn't perish. Work for the food that doesn't pass away. Do not work for your temporal agendas. Work for eternal purposes. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Okay, tell us how we should work for this food that you're telling us about. 
What should we do to be doing the works of God? What is this great work that you're telling us to work for, Jesus? And he answers them, and he says that this way. He tells them what this work is. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. That's the work. Believe in me. You can't do it. Just trust me. Trust Christ. Believe in the one whom God has sent. That's the work. All right, so they respond and they say, then what sign do you do? Okay, you want us to believe you, show us a sign that we may see and believe you. All right. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they want a sign. Of course, Jesus just day, the day before had fed 5,000 of them with five barley loaves and two fish. They should believe based on that, right? But they want another sign. Give us what we want. Give us more food today. After all, didn't Moses give to Israel in the wilderness as they were wandering around? Didn't Moses give them manna to eat from heaven? And didn't the Israelites follow him because he provided food to them in the wilderness? Why don't you do something like that, Jesus, if you want us to believe you? And Jesus corrects them. And he says this in verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave to you bread from heaven. He corrects them and says, nope, Moses didn't give you bread. The bread didn't come from Moses. Who did it come from? It came from God. God is the one who provided and then Jesus says this, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Him, Sir, give us this bread. They don't understand what it is he's talking about. And so he continues, and Jesus says to them in verse 35, he says, and here's the phrase that we've been talking about, I am the bread of life. Ego imi, the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not hunger thirst. And then he says to them this, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. They don't believe him. Why? Because he's not giving them what they want. He's not giving them, he's not accomplishing their purposes. He's not doing what they ask him to do. Jesus is not here to do their will. And so they don't believe him. And I want you to contrast that with what Jesus says next. In verses 37 through 40, he says this, all that the Father gives me will come me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, here's the contrast. They want Jesus to do their will. 
We're going to make you king. You're going to overthrow the Romans. You're going to give us what we want. You're going to give us food in our bellies. You're going to provide for us. You're going to give us this. You're going to give us that. They have their purposes for Jesus. They have their will, what they want Jesus to do for them. And Jesus says, I didn't come to do your will. My Father has a purpose. My Father has a will. And His will, in particular, is to save a people. He's going to save a people. He's going to give me a people. And His will is that I should not lose one of the people that He has given to me. Nothing of what He has given to me will I lose. And I've come to accomplish not your will, not even my own independent will. I'm not going my own way. I have come to accomplish one thing, my Father's will. I did not come to overthrow Rome. I didn't come to set myself up as king here on this earth. I came to accomplish my Father's will, which is this, to save a people and to raise them up on the last day. That's my purpose. And you don't believe me because that's not your purpose. You have other purposes. And the response of the crowd is this. In verse 41, they say, So the Jews grumbled about him, but he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And they said, Is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? See, the response to Jesus' claims about himself is to deny his identity. They don't believe him. Now, this is just the guy from down the street. This is just Joseph's son. Now, in John chapter 3, before this, and, and we haven't read that today, we, or John chapter 1, I'm sorry, we get the great story of Jesus' baptism where John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, and in that moment, he sees the Spirit come down and alight on Jesus. And we know from, from other Gospels that God audibly says of Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that's why Jesus said a couple of verses back ago, he says, on me, on him, God the Father has set his seal. The Spirit is upon Jesus. He's speaking the truth, and if they if, if they were of God, if they were of His people, they would hear the truth in Jesus' what Jesus is saying. They would hear His voice. They don't because they have other purposes. They have other things they want to accomplish, not God's will, their own will. And so their comments are like, Ego, Emi, really, I am Jesus? Really, you're talking about my father? We know your father. He's Joseph from down the street. He's the carpenter. You're the carpenter's son. Coming down from heaven, we know where you're from, from Galilee, not from heaven. Nothing can show more clearly the fickleness of the crowd. The beginning of the chapter, they wanted to make him king. Now that he's not giving them what they want, he's just the guy down the street. Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? You see, the barrier to coming to Christ isn't a mystery. The barrier of, for anyone coming to Christ is simply this, pride. Pride. The pride of the human heart is what prevents man from coming to Christ. And it comes in two forms. First, it comes in the idea that I don't need to be saved. I don't need to be saved. I'm already doing the right things, right? I'm a good person. Think of the Pharisees and their law following and how much it would chafe them, the concept, the idea that they needed to be saved. They were the ones doing it right. You think of the rich young ruler who came to see Jesus and who Jesus asked him the question. He asked Jesus the question. He's like, what do I need to do to be saved? Jesus. And he says, well, follow all the laws. He said, well, I've been doing that ever since I was little. Think of the 
crowd here. You can think in their minds, they think, isn't our cause righteous? The overthrow of this pagan country, these Romans? What do we need to be saved? We need to be saved from the Romans. Our cause is righteous. I don't personally need a Savior. It doesn't matter what good deeds or what causes you support. You cannot save yourself. The work of God, the sole work of God, is to believe in the one whom He has sent. The second way pride sometimes shows up is in a reverse type of way. It's when people say, well, I can't be saved. I can't be saved. I'm too far gone. I've done too many bad things in my life. I'm beyond salvation. God can't save me. He doesn't want me. As if you could do anything that's so bad that the God of all the world, who owns existence, who moves everything, and who gives life, couldn't save you. Both of these are a focus on ourselves, on somehow we're better, we're more important. It depends on us and what we do in some way or in some shape or form. Both of these issues are pride because they depend on you and what you have done. Nothing depends on me. Nothing depends on you. And we see that in verses 41 through 43 through 51. As we continue in verse 43, where Jesus says to them, it says, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father has, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and who has learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. But truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. What Jesus says there in verse 44 is incredibly important. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The word that's translated draw there may, in your mind, make you think of, well, you know, he's just kind of out there trying to persuade, you know, just kind of wooing us and, and drawing us and, you know, in a gentle type of way. But the word draw there is translated, in this, the, the word underneath there is to draw water out of a well, to pull it along. In other places in the New Testament, that same word is used of authorities who come and they find the person who they're going to commit to prison and they lay their hands on him and they drag him to prison. The word there that's... Uh, Translated as draw has the sense behind it of compelling, of bringing people to Christ. And here Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is a divine act. God moves men. At the very beginning, we looked at those three questions that have plagued Western philosophy since Thales, and those three questions, those fundamental questions are, why does something exist? What sets things in motion? And what is, why is there life? What accounts for life? This question addresses that second fundamental question, or this statement there does that. God moves men. God draws. He brings people to Christ. He gives people to His Son, a particular people that He is saving. Now, how does He do that? How does He do that? 
And here's the answer. The answer is God humbles them. See that statement down there where it says, everyone who is hurt, well, as the prophets say, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. God teaches men the truth. He teaches them the truth about themselves. He teaches us who we are and who He is. And He humbles us. The truth brings humility. It destroys our pride before God. See, God lets us seek after our own purposes. He lets us go our own way. He lets us seek after the things that we want and fail. We seek pleasure that never satisfies. We seek wealth that leaves us empty. There's been stories all over the news recently of some of the most powerful, wealthiest people on the world who are in the midst of terrible miserable personal events, left empty in spite of all their wealth. He lets us experience moments of fleeting success, our 15 minutes of fame. When it's over and we're forgotten, the emptiness comes in. He lets us lust for power if that's what we want to do, and then learn that that power only fails in the end. God gives us what we want and lets it fail. He allows us to see our own sinfulness. He allows us to sin the way we want to sin and then to see us for see ourselves who we truly are. And when he shows us who we are, then he shows us who he is. And as we are humbled and we see who he is, we are drawn to the Son. God's education is an education in humility. Seeing ourselves, seeing others, and then seeing Him as we ought to see Him. Think how different that is from the culture around us. Think how different that is from the world that we live in. The world tells us to pursue your dreams, your purposes to do whatever you want to do, to be whoever you want to be, to live your life to the fullest, however you want to live it, to live your truth, to serve your own interests. And in that, you'll find freedom. It's interesting that the universal posture of the apostles of Jesus Christ as you read their letters one after another is their introductions to their letters and how they describe themselves. As Paul describes himself, I'm an apostle to Jesus Christ, a servant, a slave to Jesus Christ. It was in serving Christ and in an identity firmly rooted in serving Him and Him alone and His purposes that they found freedom not themselves. But you even think of Christ here. What did He say? I didn't come to do my own will. I came to do the will of Him who sent me. That's freedom. So what sustains the apostles in their ministry? What sustains us in our ministry to the world? How do we live differently from the, from the world? How do we live as servants? How do we live in humility? What sustains us? Trust and hope and Jesus sustains us. All things depend on Him. I'm going to give two warnings. There are two warnings. And the first warning is this. There's a human tendency at all levels, even in the church, to add things on top of faith in Christ, on top of belief in the one who has been sent to the gospel. And over church history, they have been many. In Galatians chapter 5, the main controversy that Paul is addressing in the church is some of these Jewish converts to Christianity who claim, yeah, you certainly need to believe in Christ, but you also have to be circumcised. 
If you're not circumcised, if you don't do that thing, you cannot be saved. You've got to be circumcised. And Paul excoriates those who are adding anything to the gospel. He says, no, nothing can be added to the gospel. If you go back and you put your trust in circumcision instead of belief in Christ, instead of faith in Christ, you're anathema. You're basically going back to the whole law. You might as say everything depends on you. Nothing depends on you. It all depends on Christ, and you should just believe that. You'll often hear this expressed in the church this way. You'll say, well, you know, we should be doing, the church should be doing X, Y, and Z in the world. And it really is a gospel issue. If you're not doing X, Y, and Z, then there's really something with the gospel here, okay? You'll hear that a lot, as if your salvation depends upon you acting a certain way in the world and not ultimately on Christ. Now, there is a sense in which people who trust Christ will act. Don't get me wrong. We're going to talk about that when we talk about Jesus being the true vine. But don't ever mistake that as what your salvation is dependent upon. The gospel is the gospel, and you are to believe Christ. All things depend on Him and His work. The second warning is this. Human sin and pride often causes us to seek the benefits of Christ but deny His identity. Human sin, our pride, causes us to seek God's benefits, Christ's benefits, but deny his identity. Rampant in our culture is the attempt to do what you see here in this chapter, to take Christ for our agenda. And the pitfalls are profound in our culture, both on the left side of the political spectrum or the right side of the political spectrum or the, the inside the church, whether it's this church or that church, is to take Christ and to say, see, because... Um, Christ would command you to do this. This is the work of God, to do this, to, to uh, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, whatever it may be, to go out and stand in front of abortion clinics, to seek social justice, to do this, to, to not smoke, to not drink, whatever it is, whatever you're adding to the gospel, for you, it's your agenda. That's rampant in the church. but to deny Christ's identity. There's there's a reason why some of the biggest churches in the country will preach every Sunday on all the things you can get from God, but have no sermons. You search their entire file, have no sermons about the identity of Christ, who He is, and your need for Him. And that's why every week at C3, we teach who Christ is, who He is, because your entire salvation depends on you trusting Him, nothing else, faith alone and Christ alone. It all depends on Christ. So we will teach Jesus Christ and His identity so that you can see clearly who you are and clearly who He is and your need for Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for who Christ is. It all depends on Him. It all depends on what He came to accomplish, Your will, Your purposes. It does not depend on us. Lord, in a world that's often confusing on this issue, I pray that you will give this church just such a dramatic clarity of our dependence upon Christ and a boldness to proclaim that dependence to the world. Everything depends on your Son. Everything depends on His work. Lord, and I pray that we will never forget that and that we will always remember it. Amen. So every week here at Christ Community Church, we serve communion. We celebrate communion. And that's very important. John chapter 6 closes this way in a very 
controversial way. Jesus says this. He says, um, truly, truly, I say to you, in verses 53 through 59, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood, drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread of the the fathers ate and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live. Jesus says these words, and the crowd almost immediately disperses. These are tough words. Even Jesus' followers, his disciples, are talking amongst themselves saying, what does this mean? What is he saying? but they don't leave. And what Jesus is referring to here, mysterious though it may sound, especially to the ears who are hearing it this way, is something we are very familiar with. You see, eating in the context that Jesus is using it means believing it, getting it inside of you, letting it sustain you. And he's saying, if you don't eat my flesh, and drink my blood. If you don't believe in my death, which is represented by my flesh being broken for you and my blood being shed for you, then you don't have life. But if you eat it, if you believe it, if you believe in my death and my resurrection, then you have eternal life. Of course, they didn't understand that. They didn't see what Jesus was referring to, but we do. And that's why every Sunday we come here at Christ Community Church to the Lord's table and we take the little cups and the wafers that are in the aisles with us and we open those little wafers and we open that cup and we eat the bread and we drink the cup. As Paul instructed the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, he says this, I received from the Lord... What I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a reason why we restrict the Lord's Supper to believers, to those who profess that they believe in the one whom God has sent, the bread of life. And when you do this on Sunday, you participate in the proclamation of the gospel and in your belief that Christ is the bread of life. Christ's command to His church is to remember and trust Him. Take communion and celebrate that with us this morning.